It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with a friend if you find it of interest. Today, I have a conversation with the former congressman from Michigan, Peter Meyer. He is also a former Afghanistan aid worker, a veteran of the Iraq war, and someone who has uh, been in the limelight a little bit, given the fact that he was one of the votes for uh, impeachment of former President Donald Trump. He lost his primary in a contest with John Gibbs, a populist backed by uh, former President Trump, uh, and ultimately is someone who has kind of left the political scene at a younger age than you might expect for someone who comes from a very prominent Michigan family. He's someone who uh, represents, I think, uh, one of the greatest critics of the Joe Biden foreign policy when it comes to their treatment of issues related to Afghanistan, uh, having experienced it uh, front uh, hand himself in terms of uh, the different consequences that were there uh, for those who were left behind. He's also someone who I think uh, is an interesting figure to interact with the current foreign policy and congressional challenges that we face in America today, where there has been such a decline in faith in American institutions. You can follow Peter Meyer on Twitter at Rep Meyer. His last name is spelled M-E-I-J-E-R. He's an interesting person to interface with, and he promises uh, that he'll be back again within the political fray. We'll see what nature that takes. We start start off our conversation talking about the fact that he's anticipating uh, being a father uh, and everything that comes with that. Peter Meyer, coming up next. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Peter, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Uh, I know this is the first time that we've had kind of a, a significant conversation about politics and, and other issues, but mm. um, I wanted to start off by just sort of saying – uh, you know, you've obviously been someone who's been got who's gotten a lot of heat in terms of your experience in politics, and I wondered if uh, that heat that you've experienced has soured you on American politics in general. Um, I think it's a hard thing to go through in terms of of being someone who even puts your hat in the ring in the first place in this day and age, knowing what it can mean for the way that your family and friends can get attention. Is American politics something that you are sort of done with, or is it something where you feel like there's a future where you could make a comeback? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not done. Um, you know, my, my experience was certainly brief, um, but full of passionate intensity. Uh, you know, I think I personally am not turned off by it. I mean, I, it was sad to see some of my colleagues do the mental calculation of just, you know, where did they have to tow a certain line because they knew the pressure uh, might be too much for their family? Uh, my, my wife and I are expecting our first, uh, actually, about two weeks. Um, but I'm blessed to have a very uh, stubborn and, and and strong wife who doesn't 
doesn't look at, you know, negative criticisms or, or even, you know, when things spill over from, from social media into kind of real world threats. Um, you know, if anything, we kind of find that galvanizing, mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, you know, I had somebody compare being a, a politician or an elected official to being in the eye of the hurricane, you know, you, you, you experience something, but it's really nothing compared to those around you who are getting hit by the wall. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that's unfortunate. I think that that causes a lot of really good people to decide not to get in. Um, it maybe has a perverse incentive in terms of some people loving that fight and wanting to get in. Uh, and, and very little of that has any cross pollination with just doing the actual job as opposed to, you know, all of the, the brand building and, and celebrity status that uh, too many get thrilled by. Uh, are you fully prepared for your first? Well, I, you know, having spent three years between Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, my biggest lesson in both of those was whatever expectations I had going in, um, you know, you, you, you can only prepare so much. Well, I, you know, I, 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 by which great. I mean, you know, you can be as well prepared, but that maybe only gets you 20%. So much is going to be on the job. plan until you get punched in the face. Exactly. <laughs> so. It's helpful to have a plan. We have a plan. I feel yeah. good about our plan, but, you know. Semper Gumby. Uh, how how would uh, how have you set up the nursery? Is it all good? Everything put together? Oh yes, oh yes. Did um, you did you do it yourself or did you thumbtack anything? <laughs> uh, totally, totally, uh, um, totally self reliant. There. Uh, I mean, it's like IKEA furniture. You know, it's not yeah. hard. None yeah. of this is complicated. Are you? Uh, are you? Yeah. Uh, I'm just curious because we've uh, because we've done it uh, and and we have a. a two and a half year old and a three, uh, three month, almost three month old. Um, what is your plan when it comes to sleep? Are you going to be the, the, the night person? Are you going to shift off? What's the, what's the way that you're approaching that? Yeah. Uh, I think in the beginning, well, this is also the benefit of, of not having a job right now, right. <laughs> and having a, having a wife who has a job with a maternity leave. Um, you know, I, eventually there's going to be a rhythm that's going to be found. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, um, I am, I'm confident that my wife and I will be able to balance that. You know, we've kind of worked out, okay, what, what are the co-sleeping arrangements? How are we going to do that? If it becomes mm -hmm. sort of a, a colicky situation, then, you know, is there a need to kind of have uh, a sleeping location that maybe is, is sufficiently distant to not, um, be drowned yeah. out by the, the cries of a, a poor <laughs> child, um, for the, parent who is off duty and yeah, yeah um, but, but yeah we haven't we haven't worked out those schedules yet la last question before i get back, <laughs> back to politics have you have you any clues as to the mood of the baby and by that i just mean has it been like an an active kicker uh an active uh sort of uh, uh baby or is it more sedate is it a little more calm in the womb because that is having now experienced both things, mm. that is the way they come out in, in the sense that, that if they're active, then they're active. And if they're calm and kind of cozy, then they are more that. Well, and, and this is the challenge, right? Is I don't have a baseline against mm -hmm. which to compare the activity. So um, uh, I'm hoping normal degrees of activity that don't necessarily carry over into <sighs> hyperactivity uh, on the flip side, uh, once, once out of the womb. Um, but but certainly, you know, certainly plenty of uh, plenty of roles, plenty of um, 
our, you know, our first daughter, our first daughter was running a marathon every day, and our second daughter just wants to just wants to be calm and cozy. So yeah. it's, it's I, a, I don't blame it's a them. Mark difference, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's that's probably the most comfortable moment you know any of us are going to face. So yeah, um, I I know that it's one of these things where uh, you know you've had all of these different experiences in your life to this point, um, but uh, it has to be incredibly infuriating to see this report put out by the White House last week. Uh, we could go today uh, when we're recording this interview, yeah. um, you know, dumped before a holiday weekend uh, about what went down in Afghanistan. Uh, I know that this is, this is an issue that is uh, important to you personally, something that you care about and obviously, you know, have, have played an active role in in terms of the policy arena. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, what the White House put out, what the uh, the general consensus is about how things played out in the Afghanistan exit and what lessons you took from it? Yeah, uh, I mean, I'll just start by saying this is actually one of the rare issues where I'm very, very grateful for the mainstream media uh, mm -hmm. and the fact that journalists writ large um, across the political spectrum are, have shown almost no interest in carrying the Biden administration's water on this uh, yeah. and, and mark contrast to plenty of other issues. But just in part of that, I think, was informed during the withdrawal, you know, they especially larger news organizations that had an international bureau, uh, you know, this wasn't some distant, far off incident that was totally removed from them. I mean, many of those reporters had rotated through Afghanistan. They knew, uh, you know, they had gotten to know and befriended the, the local nationals who had worked for their organization, either as fixers, as drivers, as, as local journalists. Uh, and so, you know, they were hearing in real time from folks who were experiencing it in real time in contrast with just the the whitewashing or the, the delay of, of providing good information or the attempts to downplay the severity of what was occurring that was happening every day in the White House briefing room. And I mean, this this NSC report that was put out, A, I mean, this was not a um, this is not a document meant to be you know, enduring in the historical record. This was a political response uh, because the administration needed to try to shift the narrative away from their own culpability and responsibility for how the withdrawal was executed and try to pin it on uh, the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And I, I was grateful to see that almost universally it was panned, but especially by folks who understood that not just you know journalists or those in the political uh, arena, but a lot of my friends who are in you know, the, the political science, kind of international relations, those who were bona fide experts on the country um, and, and had been studying it for, you know, in the American involvement for, um, you know, over a decade, just like, what the hell is this thing? Mm -hmm. uh, and and I saw this firsthand in, in both um, closed door briefings and, 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 and open hearings on the Hill, you know, the, uh, the incredibly simplistic, you know, and, and, you know, I was frustrated by some of my Republican colleagues who just said, well, it was all Biden's fault. And that's the you know, start and finish of it. And then the Democrats just saying it was all Trump's fault. And that was a start and finish of it. And mm -hmm. I mean, the reality is much more complicated and we can debate the merits of withdrawing. But there is no question that the execution of this withdrawal will go down as one of the you know greatest indicators of our institutional incompetence. And, and duplicity uh, from a public relations and communication standpoint, and the inability. I mean, Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, I think uh, two and a half weeks ago said he had no regrets with how this 
withdrawal was executed, uh, and also that nobody had been held accountable in any way, shape, or form, you know, and that he didn't see a need for there to be accountability. Now, contrast that with some of our NATO allies, you know, um, the, the Dutch, right? I, was, I had a meeting with the uh, with an individual from the Dutch Foreign Ministry and uh, another from the Dutch Ministry of Defense, where notably in the weeks that followed the withdrawal, both their defense minister and their foreign minister resigned in shame because mm. they left behind you know, several dozen individuals who had been interpreters for them. Uh, and that was an outrage and the Dutch demanded accountability. You know, and and they, they asked me in this meeting, they're like, oh, do you think there will be accountability on the American side? And, and I looked at my watch, it was 4.45. I didn't have any other meetings for that day. And I was like, I, I can't have this conversation without some whiskey in my hand. It's just, <laughs> um, but but it's, it's I, I would be... I would respect the individuals, and even short of, of folks resigning, I would have so much more respect for members of this administration if they said, listen, we made mistakes. Mm -hmm. We should have done this better. We should have prepared better on this end. Um, we should have started the evacuation sooner. Uh, we missed these signals. And, and, and here's what we're going to do to make sure it doesn't happen again. But we're not getting any of that. It's, what are you talking about? Uh, John Kirby saying, I didn't see any chaos. You know, yeah. that wasn't my... It's like, now they, I mean, is Biden going to go back and be like, actually, the crowd size at my inauguration was a historic <laughs> record too? I mean, like, it's it, it'd be one thing. I don't know, I, I, I'm, um, yeah, it, it depresses the hell out of me. Well, and, and I think this, this is what you you mentioned. You mentioned a couple of times something that I think is so important here. I talk a lot on my podcast and in other contexts about um, the decay of American faith in institutions, and. You know, I think that a lot of times people will just, you know, uh, go back to the trope of sunlight is the best disinfectant. But the reason that it's the best disinfectant is if there is accountability for what that sunlight reveals. In our current status, I think that what we actually have is we don't have enough sunlight, but then when we get it, there aren't any consequences for it. Nobody loses their job. Nobody gets fired. Nobody gets uh, reamed out in front of a in front of a hearing. I mean, and in the rare instances where that does happen, you know, we've seen a little bit of that with you know Rand Paul's treatment of Anthony Fauci, and you know a couple of other you know incidences you know here and there. John Kennedy, you know, interviewing uh, some of these judicial nominees who don't know, <laughs> you know, the, don't seem to be able to remember how yeah. many amendments there are in the Constitution, that kind of thing. But, but the thing that I think is so telling is that like. There are no consequences in today's Washington. Nobody gets fired. Nobody has to fall on their sword. They just stick it out. They just put their heads down and they endure. And that, I think, is actually the thing that Americans can't stand because they know that if they screwed up to that degree in their place of work, they would be fired. Um, and Washington just seems immune to that. How does that change? What do we do to change that? How do we change to a point where the administrative state is not, uh, you know, essentially uh, immortal life for all of these bureaucrats? Yeah, and, and I'll just I'll go one further and say the the threat or the fear of that accountability also helps on the front end. Folks say we need to get this right, because if we don't, heads yep. are going to roll. If we don't, yep. there's going to be a congressional investigation. It's all going to be ripped out in the open. But if they know that 
you know, if they're a Democrat and it's a Democratic administration, um, you know, by and large, the media will you know, carry a lot of water for them, generally speaking. Again, this being a rare exception to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also, I think, a there's there's this this bet that's being placed on the attention span of the public that, that by the time the truth comes out, you know, by the time the, the lie is revealed to be what it is or the, the spin is revealed to have been mm-hmm. as, as empty and threadbare as it was, uh, that folks will have moved on. And, you know, you see this uh, just in the, the balloon, the Chinese spy balloon, right? There was totally. know, anonymous sources say that X, Y, and Z wasn't able to see, look, we're fine. You know, <laughs> six months later or six weeks later. Actually, yeah, that wasn't the case. Um, that, was, that was totally a lie, right? But in... in I mean, I'm, I'm more critical, uh, not that the right bears responsibility, but I, I get frustrated on the right partially because we can do so much better mm-hmm. if we, you know, the Afghanistan withdrawal, um, if the the notion that, oh, we left 85 billion worth of, of equipment behind, it's like, oh, 85 billion is the total amount of, of military support, including training and assistance you know, for the Afghan security forces over the entire 20 year war. You know, it was definitely several billion dollars worth of equipment. But if the if the attack is exaggerated, then mm. the, the Democrats and, and the Biden measures say, well, that's not accurate. You know, that, uh, blah, 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 without addressing the the, the underlying substance, it gives the them claim. an easy out. It gives them an easy out. And and now I think, um, yeah, I, I. So so let me ask you, though, about what can be done about this, because yeah. this is you know one of my frustrations is that. You know, Congress has ceded so much of its power, mm-hmm. its unwillingness to use its power over the purse in ways that are targeted or that are designed to create some kind of, of consequence or change, you know, has been well demonstrated. What can the Congress actually do to m- make oversight in these areas have some real teeth? I mean, it, it just seems like in the absence of that, this only continues to get worse we continue to see situations where, um, you know, as you said, you know, under under a Democratic administration, Democrat-leaning bureaucrats get away with things. The media cares water for them, and there's no, you know, ultimate consequences, and there's nothing on the front end either in terms of, you know, feeling like we have to get this right or or there's going to be consequences for this. I mean, I think back to the Obamacare launch and how many, you know, how disastrous that was in terms of just making a functional website, you know, and, and you didn't have, you didn't have consequences for that at that time either. There really were not, you know, the kind of consequences that you would have liked to see. So whether it's trying to make, I mean, people get infuriated at a government when they feel like it's asleep at the wheel. And, you know, we just had this example of, you know, a, of all things, apparently a Massachusetts, you know, air national guard guy, you know, going on discord, and leaking things not out of some like ambitious, you know, attempt to change policy like Edward Snowden did or something like that, but just out of like wanting to impress his buddies on the on the list. At least that seems to me to be the read of it. That kind of thing just makes people lose faith in these institutions that we need to have faith in. So how can Congress exercise the power that it ought to be able to have under the Constitution? in ways that will lead to better behavior by these institutions? Well, first and foremost, you need to write the imbalance, as you pointed out, the imbalance between the president and the executive branch and, and Congress and the legislative branch. And I think 
it's really acute when it comes to war powers and when it comes to our military uh, and, and conflict operations. You know, the war in Afghanistan, the, the legal the legal grounding for all of that activity was in the 2001 authorization for use of military force. And, and I know some of my colleagues just want to flat out repeal it. I think there are some uh, necessary authorities that we need to have renewed. But the idea that for the past two decades, not a single member of Congress has had to place an up or down vote. Uh, and, 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 and by the way, before you get to that vote, you don't have substantive committee hearings. You don't have members asking questions. And most importantly, you don't have the Department of Defense having to articulate an answer to those, having to sharpen those pencils because they need to provide those members with the confidence that they're, they will place a good vote and an informed vote in that moment. Right. So when you break down that entire system, you, you still have members who are interested, you know, on the margins, right? You still have, you know, the occasional hearing around war powers and authorities, but you don't have members who say, I need to understand this and I need the Department of Defense to convince me of their strategy and what they're doing mm -hmm. for me to continue to cast a vote in support of this, right? So when Congress takes its, its hands off the wheel and just lets the DOD operate on autopilot, you know, we can make large changes after a catastrophe or an outrage, but we aren't able to make the course corrections that prevent that catastrophe in the first place. You, now, you effectively end up with five minute speeches from Tulsi Gabbard and Thomas Massey, and then the just it goes away. You know, yeah. and that's and that's not a way for Congress to function. Mm -hmm. That's not doing your jobs. Um, one of the things that I looking back at the history of Congress and, and paying attention to some of the different changes that were made over the years. I'm, I'm curious as to your attitude toward one specific thing that was done, you know, back in the 94 revolution that Newt Gingrich led, you know, one of the things that was so key about that contract with America that people tend to forget is that most of the changes they made were kind of internal functional things, you know, about the ways that uh, staff was paid and committees were funded and a bunch of other things that, you know, didn't actually have to do with, um, kind of big picture things, you know, people think about the contract or think about things like that as being like, you know, big top line issues and said, no, it was like, it was institutional reform shifts that they made. One of the things that is a consequence of that, that we still live with today is that congressional staffs and the budgets associated with them are pretty small, uh, especially when you're dealing with, you know, the amount of issues that every member has to deal with. Do you think that we need to expand those budgets, both to retain good staffers, prevent them from having to go, you know, get paid by K Street in order to send their kids to college, um, and also to kind of right the ship when it comes to the relationship that you have with bureaucrats, where, you know, so much of this business of actually writing legislation is almost outsourced to the entities themselves as opposed to something that's done internally by staff? Oh, I think without question, uh, you know, one of the things that happened in the, the 1994 revolution was also diminishing some of the institutional capacity, uh, not just on the staff side, not just on the committee side, but also you know, uh, entities like the Congressional Technology Office were done away with. You know, I, I think of how much more effective Congress would have been just on the on the defense and national security side of the House if Congress had its own intelligence analysis bureau. Hmm. So you had people who were uh, whose job was it to do analysis rather than trusting the analysis that's done by the executive branch 
where there's going to be a strong incentive not to put forward a finished product that may contradict what the public statements are of the your boss's 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 boss, right? Mm -hmm. So so Congress is really at it's especially true on the classified realm, but generally speaking, Congress is very much dependent on the executive branch to provide the information that we need in order to make a determination on whether the executive branch is doing the right thing or the wrong thing. And and if, if the executive branch is both writing uh, the legislation when it comes to rules and the rulemaking authority administratively, right? They are, they're crafting much of that policy. Uh, and then they're also the ones who are providing Congress with the data uh, you know, it's no surprise that we've gotten to a point where you have such an unaccountable bureaucracy. And, yeah. you know, I'm a, I'm very firmly of the belief that for every additional dollar that you put into Congress that they can put into the legislative function of oversight, right? For every dollar you put in there, you could probably take away 10 or or $100 from the executive branch. And mm -hmm. it's, I mean, I don't know what the actual ratio is, but legislative versus executive employees in this country. Uh, I you mean, may not know what that ratio is, but one. it's there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's um, obscene. So uh, you mentioned something there that I uh, wanted to get to next, which is uh, tr the trust level with the intel community. Broadly <laughs> speaking, intel law enforcement has been something that really within the last seven or eight years – has completely flipped in terms of Republican voters' attitudes toward it. Obviously, that's mostly due to the treatment of President Trump, um, but it's not just due to that. It's also, it seems to me, uh, due to kind of the weaponization of this whole uh, area against Republicans generally. Um, you know, the work of people like Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell and, yeah. and people along those lines who have, you know, used this as like a partisan brickbat when it was traditionally uh, treated as being something where, look, as much as we might fight on the networks, as much as we might disagree about policy, when we get into these rooms where we're being shown the most important information in the world uh, and the threats that America is facing, we take off our red and blue ties and we actually you know, behave um, like, like citizens and like gentlemen. Uh, and so I realize that's an old-fashioned way of thinking about this, but it's really important. How do we get back to the point where both Americans, particularly the Republicans whose distrust has risen under this period, uh, can trust these institutions again? Um, and how do we do it in a way that makes it clear that we can't ever go down the road of having this type of intel community, law enforcement community weaponization against a an opposing candidate? I mean, I can only imagine the treatment that the Bush Cheney administration would have gotten if they had engaged in that kind of behavior against Barack Obama, you know, and it, it would have been, you know, just a absolutely a travesty. Uh, and yet, you know, when it comes to this, it seems like because Trump is so unique and because he, you know, uh, has so many different uh, foes and causes so much beef with so many people, he, he only, he, he, he likes to, he likes to fight with everyone at once. Um, uh, that we now are reaching this point where people don't trust the CIA, they don't trust the FBI, they don't trust these people who we need to be able to trust in order to keep us safe. How do we change that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it starts with those organizations not giving so much grist for the mill, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I think some of the criticism is exaggerated, but there is incredible amounts of valid criticism of the way the FBI has conducted itself. Uh, I mean, if you, especially when you look towards um, their actions around 
you know, any number of, of domestic security incidents. And if you have then an inability to, and I'm, I'm cute, I don't like the phrase both sides, but I love pointing out this is not a, you know, the one side on many of these issues, right, may be a, a little bit more to blame, but there is so much blame to go around that we end up in these scenarios where, uh, you know, Schiff and Swalwell will say, well, yeah, I mean, we weaponized the House Intelligence Committee and, and, and would go on TV and say, well, I can't tell you about all the classified things because I can't betray confidences, <laughs> but just know that Donald Trump is guilty, right? You know, they would, they would make those illusions. Now, it would be a lot... And, and then that also forces many of those um, institutions into a really awkward position. You know, I mean, James Comey um, yeah. with Hillary Clinton was probably the perfect example where now they're in, in the best of worlds. They're trying to avoid the political spotlight, but they're getting dragged into it. And then they're fumbling. You know, they're doing a poor job. And the worst of worlds, they are uh, maybe more primed to believe the worst of somebody who is their political adversary and more willing to give a pass to those who are on their own team. I think if there was more transparency across the board, you know, and you talk about the classified documents that this uh, Texas, or, sorry, Maryland Air National Guard um, airmen put out, you know, we both have too many things that are classified in government, many of which are oftentimes are classified, yeah. um, not because it's that sensitive, but because they're trying to avoid uh, external um, external consequences. They're trying to avoid criticism. If we had a, a better pairing of that, if there was more uh, accountability for folks who, who didn't give Congress the documents it needed, uh, which, I mean, holy, I mean, it's it it a bad, bad, bad dynamic. But a little bit of that is on members of Congress themselves and on folks to not fan flames in, in ways, because if, if I'm a member of the intelligence community and I know if I put something out, it's you know, it's not if it's not going to be read by serious and sober people, you know, then they start to hold things back. Then you have more screw ups like we're in so many of these doom loops where, mm -hmm. you know, you, you kind of just have to say we you all sides need to exhibit some restraint. There needs to be some, you know, self policing. Um, I'm I'm very sympathetic to you know, saying, listen, this was dished out to us. We're going to dish it back. And then can we come to an agreement that we're not doing this anymore? Right. Uh, yeah. Speaker McCarthy did that with ejecting folks from committees, uh, you know, after Nancy Pelosi did that and then had a sit down and say, let's have a code of conduct so that we concretize what these rules are. So people know them in advance. Yeah. Um, and well, that's something uh, I know uh, uh, I was interviewing Nancy Mace and I know that's something <laughs> that she cares about a great deal. And, and um, I think that one of the things that is, one of the things that's really interesting about this is there is this there's this incentive in place to get on and this is something that uh, uh Trey Gowdy and I uh, talked mm -hmm. about recently to get on TV to you know get on primetime to uh uh you know make your point and basically be a hype man for your side of the aisle that's something that you know, as a member of Congress seems to be a bigger and bigger part of the job as they're treating it. Um, I don't like that, <laughs> not just because it competes with my own airtime, but because because I think that it's it's one of these things where that's not what they sent you to do. That's yeah. not what you're there for. It helps you raise money, but it's not the actual job that you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the problem there, too, is. When Congress doesn't do its job, 
because we have taken away so much power and responsibility from it, it can be hard to tell when Congress is truly screwing up. Right. You know, and I'm not talking about the media portrayal. I mean, uh, American citizens feeling the consequences of sending the wrong people to Washington, D.C. Now, yeah. There are certainly consequences. Right. I mean, look at inflation as a consequence of a lot of the deficit spending um, during the Biden administration, the American Rescue Plan, the Inflation Reduction Act, all of those pieces of legislation that just poured more cash you know, onto the inflationary fire. Right. But it can be very hard because we have so much of that removed, it can be hard to hold folks responsible for the consequences of the actions they undertook, which means it's very easy for them to blame somebody else and to pass that buck, right? And then that just perpetuates that cycle. You know, there's a lot of folks when I say we need to make Congress more powerful, we need to make that a, a much more significant entity in our federal government. Like, well, look at Congress. It's, it's a it's a joke. It's a laughing stock. Like, yeah. Exactly. It's that way because it can be that way. Mm-hmm. Congress can be an absolute farce. And and we can't really tell the difference. If, yeah. And if you could tell the difference between, you know, those members who are serious and sober and doing something and those who are just, you know, don't even have legislative staffers, they're purely communications oriented. Um, if that was felt in the district, then they would decide they would make a change to who they were sending forward. But if your idea of effectiveness of a member is how often you see them on your favorite favorite cable program, you know, then that's going to tilt. The incentives and the way that yeah. it has. So um, I want to ask you, uh, with the time we have left, about mm-hmm. just kind of the general direction of the conservative cause in the country. Obviously, conservatives um, uh, made peace uh, with uh, or or essentially uh, came uh, to support uh, Donald Trump during during his rise and afterwards, even though he did so as someone who had espoused a lot of views that were not conservative at all. Mm-hmm. They made their peace with him and they even, you know, uh, worked with him despite, you know, in some cases, you know, being someone who was personally insulted by him, such as, you know, people like Ted Cruz. You know, they've they've figured out kind of a way to navigate it. Now, though, they face a real decision about whether they want to go through this whole rodeo again. Mm -hmm. Um, And the 2024 nomination battle certainly seems like one where, you know, as I've been saying for, for months, Trump is the likeliest nominee. That being said, there does seem to be concern that this is a moment historically in America where people would like to shift to a new generation. We've had three presidents born in the same year. We have a president now who's older than all three of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh, it's one of these things where you know people just kind of are feeling like, can we can we move on from this baby boomer stuff? Is that even possible? Um, Obviously, Kevin McCarthy being, you know, the only younger uh, uh, sort of leader in the in the current Congress in terms of uh, of his approach uh, as, uh, you know, in, in opposition to the the Pelosi, Schumer, McConnell kind of, of dynamic. Do you think that we're actually at a point where people are eager enough to move to a younger potential leader for the Republican Party? Or do you think that the dominance that Trump has shown in terms of his uh, his political forays within the primary context, at least, is going to prevent that? I mean, I I don't want to make common cause with folks who just want to return to the pre-Trump GOP, right? Sure. Because that was uh, that was a, a listless, lacking in energy. Um, it certainly had had wins, right? I don't want to discount some of those wins, but it didn't necessarily pivot away from or, or, or 
it was not something that a rising generation could feel excited about. Yeah. Right? And, and I, I reject fully the dynamic that we either uh, need that, you know, the Trump era was perfect and there's nothing we should change or the pre-Trump era was perfect. And we just need to get back to that. Like that, that is just not a good dichotomy. That's revisionist history. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I, I am deathly fearful of generational unified democratic control of our government. And I think that would be massively destructive. We've already seen what that has done to us economically through inflation mm-hmm. and imagine what the response to a, a global cataclysm economically, right? If we went into a new great depression, what total erasure of, of the free market, total erasure of, of any uh, institutions that were not governmental from this country would do to us in the long term, right? That, that scares the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. And in order to prevent that, you need Republicans who can win competitive elections, right? You need Republicans who can take back well, we have taken back the House, but it's a perilous majority. Yeah. Uh, we need to be able to take back the Senate. We need to be able to take back the White House. And I'm, uh, I, I, I think that the, my frustration on the right is is that we should have plenty of room for for policy disagreements, but you probably shouldn't be actively telling people not to vote for you or actively trying to eject people from your party. Um, yeah. I mean, we've seen in Arizona, uh, that was just not the smartest strategy, right? It turns out, you know, well, it turns out that 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 you need more votes than than the other person, and if you tell the other person, it turns speak, out in a state, yeah. it is, turns out in a state where there's there's uh, like an insanely huge population of independents, that it's not a good idea to tell people not to vote for you. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the other reality is, you have folks and uh, you have Republicans in our political process for whom winning. And actually having the burden and responsibility of governing uh, is is less favorable to their personal prospects, is, is a less mm-hmm. tantalizing proposition than sort of the consequence-free realm of being in the minority. You know, the worse things get, great. The more angry people will get, the more fundraising I can do, the bigger the brand I can build. Right. So yeah. I, I, I have... Um, so that I mean, that is something we should fundamentally be rejecting folks who, at the end of the day, do not care about points on the board and do not care about being able to take office and also thinking not just what am I saying to kind of get my base excited? What am I how am I going to preach the best to my choir? But mm. always keeping in mind that marginal voter, because those are the people who are deciding whether or not you're going to win or lose. And, and in my mind, I want to be able to persuade that marginal voter who maybe is coming into it, disagreeing with me. And if I can change their mind, great. If I can get them to say, well, you know what? You know, we don't see eye to eye, but like I trust this individual and I trust how they're approaching the situation, right? That's how you're going to win. Uh, maybe not those elections where the primary is the only battle because it's a safe seat. Democrats have done this on their redistricting side. Republicans have done this on the redistricting side. You know, we had in 2000 out of the 435 House seats, 160 of them were within, you know, a 10 point. Um, you know, kind of presidential result. It went from 160 to 60 in, in this current redistricting cycle. You know, and that is only going to mean that when the Democrats are in charge, they're going to go even further to an extreme. And when if we can't get to the point where we are in charge of more than just one branch, uh, we're going to be run roughshod over and we can expect more of the same. I'm not satisfied with that. And I think if there were members of the older generation in the party who felt as passionately about ultimate 
victory in a general election, um, I would be more than happy to enthusiastically back them. But I do think it's time for folks to step up and say, we need folks who are going to be alive to see the consequences of the decisions that they're making today. I am very interested in getting back to the point where the coalition of the right isn't talking about, you know, uh, flipping things based on stuff, you know, battles within the 40 yard lines. Like I want, I want to see them say, no, we can win 40 States. <laughs> we can win 40 States if we do this the right way uh, and get back to that as opposed to just, uh, you know, uh, just giving up on the idea that that a, a true majoritarian approach um, is not one that they can pursue. I just don't I don't believe it. And I think that there's it's a very limited vision to just keep battling back and forth in that narrow space. I agree. Peter, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. It's a pleasure to talk to you. No, it's a pleasure, Ben. Thank you. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. So I wanted to give you a little bit of insight into the way that reporting about Washington works and uh, both the kind of good side of it and the bad side of it. The good side of it is there are lots of people who are willing to talk. Washington is a gossipy town and there's lots of folks who will try to approach you with their various messages and the things that they want to get into the press, into the conversation. One of the things you have to be uh, good at, though, when it comes to uh, interspersing you know, these types of issues with what's really going on in Washington is understanding that you have to take a grain of salt with everything that you hear. You have to think about why someone might want you to report something a certain way or what narrative they're trying to advance when they're reaching out to you with some good gossip. That's something that I tell to a lot of young journalists, people who I uh, go in and participate on panels or, or talk to about my own career with regularity. Did this just again uh, last week at the Best of a Friend. And it's one of those things that I think is very uh, well-serving in terms of making sure that you're not just carrying water for one person or the other. There's a whole slew of people, for instance, that I don't listen to when it comes to conversations about Republican leadership battles and the like, uh, whether you're someone who is opposed to Kevin McCarthy and believes that there's no way that he's going to end up being speaker, or whether you're someone who's opposed to Mitch McConnell and wants to show him the door as quickly as possible. I take everything that you say to me with a grain of salt. It's one of the reasons why I thought that Kevin McCarthy would be back and have said, said so for you know months in advance of, of even that fray that played out in the Congress. I also thought that Mitch McConnell would hold on to his leadership role uh, until, you know, the, you actually had to uh, pull it away from his cold, dead hands as the old Charlton Heston quote goes. He's not going to be someone who is eager to head to the exits. We reported something at the spectator where I'm editor at large, uh, in our gossip column Coburn, which is uh, written by uh, a number of different people. His identity, the main identity of the author is secret to all in Washington, though a few people might be able to guess it. But there was a report that was put out along the lines of this, uh, that speaker, uh, I mean, that Senate majority leader, Mitch McConnell was in the aftermath of a fall that occurred at the former Trump uh, uh, Hotel, uh, now the Waldorf Astoria in Washington, D.C., that took him out of the uh, limelight for many uh, weeks, that in his absence, a number of different moves were being made uh, by his fellow Republican senators. They are known colloquially in Washington as the three Johns, John Thune, John Cornyn, and John Barrasso, all anticipated as potential people who might try to replace Mitch McConnell 
should he leave. It was a serious fall that hospitalized Mitch McConnell, had him, you know, again, out of the limelight, out of any kind of public awareness uh, for many weeks. And in that moment, there was a lot of action going on from these different senators, reaching out to different offices, asking to go to lunch with various senators, uh, you know, doing the kind of lobbying routine that you can anticipate in terms of the lead up to a leadership election. This was particularly targeted at the 16 different senators who voted for a, a, a delay in the leadership elections after the last uh, midterms. And then 10, of course, who, of those same number who voted to replace Mitch McConnell with Senator Rick Scott of Florida. This was something that was a signal. Uh, basically, these are votes to be won by the incoming next potential leader. And, you know, it's something that a lot of us in Washington paid attention to because it was kind of a signal about, okay, what are the different factions at play here? Who are the different people who are going to come in and weigh in on this subject and potentially be kingmakers in terms of determining the next leader whenever that happens? If it's something that happens in months or years from now or what have you. So this is something that was reported out in uh, in the Spectator. You can find it there uh, about the potential for a Mitch McConnell you know situation where People were trying to vie to replace him, perhaps anticipating a retirement that would come maybe sooner than the next election. So this is something that riled up uh, McConnell land, made them pretty angry, particularly his major consultant, Josh Holmes, uh, who kind of views himself as McConnell's enforcer. He goes after pretty much anybody who's a critic of the Senate majority leader, of which there are obviously a huge number of people, including former President Trump, but also extending to, you know, the likes of a little old me. This is something that really riled them up, but it's also something that led to them to say a bunch of lies about this report. Uh, first off, uh, in on Josh Holmes' own podcast, which he puts out alongside some of his compatriots, he said that we had actually reported that Mitch McConnell was about to retire and that he was not going to come back to the Senate. That's not something that we reported at all. In fact, you can read the piece and you'll see that that's not in there at all. He also reported that this was something that was being put there and and demonstrably planted by uh, Rick Scott and his uh, various uh, anti-McConnell faction of uh, political uh, you know consultants or or people who worked on his team or something like that. That's also not true. Uh, when it comes to reporting like this, you know you don't trust people who are necessarily you know uh, have a real axe to grind. Instead, you turn to the very people who make up the contacts that you have within any number of Senate offices, including chiefs of staff, legislative directors, uh, people who you know have close connections to the office and the in the sense of you know high level political consultants and the like. You don't just take it from somebody who comes to you who has you know a long history of not wanting that person to head for the exits. And you also reach out across ideological lines to make sure that you're not just getting something that comes from a conservative faction or anything like that. Instead, you're responsible about the way that you're reporting. Most of all, when it comes to uh, reporting like this, it's very important that you read the reporting involved. Not that you read the Twitter traffic or the tweets that are put out around a story, but you actually read the text of the story, something that Holmes and his compatriots clearly did not do. Our reporting was completely accurate. The fact is that the three Johns have been reaching out very aggressively to many other Senate offices in perhaps anticipation that this leadership fight could come before the next election. That When that happens, if it happens, 
it will certainly be something that will upend a lot of the different assumed scenarios about the way that the Senate will function with Mitch McConnell as leader. Republicans would have a completely different scenario without the kind of stability that he has brought to that job. That could be both good and bad from a lot of different perspectives. Perhaps bad from the situation of upheaval, good from the situation of a lot of conservatives who would like to see uh, you know, the leadership of the, of the Senate not fill the tree and prevent the type of amendment process that they would like to see in a modern Congress. Um, but it's also something that I think would be a significant upheaval for the Republican Party. Mitch McConnell has been the foil for a lot of anti-establishment Republicans for a very long time. And in his absence, potentially with someone who might be a little further right, might be a little closer to that conservative faction, you won't necessarily have the same ability to target the leadership as being just a bunch of squishes, the same kind of development that we've seen happen in the House with the ascendance of Kevin McCarthy. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast brought to you by Fox News. I will look forward to be back with you again soon to dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.